um, interaction that Jesus, the risen Savior, Jesus had with Thomas. Uh, and uh, look at one or two of the things from that and hopefully apply the significance and importance of that into our own lives uh, as we think about uh, the resurrection. We've seen how significant and how important uh, that is. We've seen that uh, in a lot of different ways. We're reminded of that this morning as well. But it's very important to remember one or two different things about this account uh, of Jesus and Thomas. And the first thing is that uh, Jesus... Uh, saw the risen Savior. Okay. He wasn't uh, with Jesus. Uh, he wasn't with the disciples uh, when uh, Jesus appeared to them at first. Uh, but then a week later, uh, when the disciples were in the house again, verse 20, Thomas was with them. And he, at that time, he saw Jesus. And that's very important because uh, Thomas is uh, one of the disciples and he needed to be part of that witness uh, for those who saw uh, the risen Savior and uh, the, uh, the mark of uh, their discipleship and the mark of their uh, apostolic uh, ro- role was that they had seen the risen Savior and he was part of that witness. And so what's important in the early chapter, the, the, the end of the chapters and the Gospels and also in Acts, is that uh, what we recognize is we don't have the church, over a long period of time, gradually coming round to the idea, well, it would be a good idea to have a risen Savior and formulating some kind of uh, theology uh, of a risen Savior uh, over a long period of time. Uh, it's no gradual kind of uh, uh, invention that comes through their minds as to it would be a, a, a great way to start the church. We have kind of condensed into... A fairly short uh, uh, period of time, uh, these different resurrection appearances of Jesus, five in a day, and then uh, four more different appearances to over 40 people, uh, uh, 40 different appearances uh, of Jesus, one, one of which was to 500 people, and then latterly, uh, as one, as it were, out of time, we born uh, to Paul. And that's very important, that that historical uh, reality of the risen Savior is documented and witnessed and made clear and known and understood by those who are going to go on to uh, preach the gospel and to found the early church that was founded on this great reality of Jesus Christ who was alive and who was well. And now that speaks of uh, a couple of things. It speaks just simply of the importance of the resurrection. I think we've seen that recently. I think when we looked at Easter, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, which speaks so powerfully uh, and uh, in an apologetic, uh, reasoned way. It says, look, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're still in our sins and uh, everything is a waste of time. And the, the reality is that our faith, as I suppose, it is futile. It's our, it's our guarantee I was speaking to someone this week uh, who um, uh, the son of somebody uh, who is dying and the son is saying that his mother wants me to do her funeral and uh, she's a Christian and I was speaking to him about her and I'm, I was asking, you know, how, how is she? She knows she's dying, she's got terminal cancer and uh, he said, well, she's amazing. Uh, she knows where she's going. She knows that uh, death for her isn't the end. And, you know, 
it just reminded me again and, and uh, is a great reminder to us that it has, it's this seal of guarantee. Uh, sometimes, uh, for those of you who are younger, it doesn't maybe have the same resonance. As we, as we begin to get older, it begins to it matter more to us. The kind of significant and important things that this world holds on to uh, are passing and sometimes passes by. But we have the reality of, in Christ, a guarantee that we will be raised with him, that we will live again even uh, though we die, that the victory is his, that he's defeated death. It's a powerful, uh, uh, strengthening uh, theological truth for us to uh, know and to understand, not only from the point of view of ourselves, but from his point of view, that he's the Christ who has come once, who uh, is raised and ascended, but will return. He's the resurrected Christ who returns, who comes back. So anything in this life that we do, or anything in this life that we are, must be understood through the perspective of a Christ who returns and who takes home his own, um, uh, or the dead will be raised uh, who have died in Christ to be with him and to go with him. And that is a really important perspective and one that we must remind ourselves of because we'll not read it every day in the newspaper. It doesn't come up in the media. It's a completely different world perspective to the one we're hearing every single day. And uh, that is part of, and I'll go and say a little bit more about that later. So the importance of the resurrection, obviously, is a transforming truth. It hugely transformed these early disciples, understandably, because they thought, they, you know, we thought he was going to be the one. We thought he was going to be the Messiah, and he, he died. They just simply hadn't grasped until they saw the resurrected Savior. It utterly transformed their lives and their thinking. And we look for and we hope that the, tr- the resurrection of Jesus is a transformational truth for us in our lives. But it also reminds us of uh, th- this truth in, in Thomas seeing the risen Savior. It reminds us of, um, almost by the way, of the importance of a physical resurrection. Because it's a physical, resurrected Jesus that Thomas sees. It's not an a- a- apparition. It's not a ghost. It's not, just, it's not uh, uh, something that's not real. It's, it's a physical, uh, resurrected body of Jesus. No longer in the tomb. Uh, but there's still evidence of what had happened to him before his death. And it's an affirmation for us that resurrection involves uh, uh, a stamp of approval on God's material creation. That this material creation that he's made, that we're part of, that we feel and touch, that we are, and that we stand on is going to be a, a renewed and resurrected uh, creation and uh, bodies that we have, that we will have in uh, glory in the new heavens and the new earth, a resurrected body that can touch, that can eat, that can drink, that can talk, it's like Christ's resurrected body. Um, and I believe, one, that we will be able to uh, recognize others. Uh, we'll not all be new and strangers to one another. But at the same time, remarkably, First Corinthians 15 talks about it as being a transformed, imperishable, honorable, powerful, immortal body. And it's, you know, we, we read this morning from Ephesians 3 about God being able to do above and beyond what we can ask or even imagine. Well, that's the kind of realm we're moving into. We're moving into the asking or understanding above and beyond what we can ask or even imagine when we think about what Christ 
uh, will do for us in resurrection. It's hard, I know. It's hard when we're sitting here. It's hard when we've got tomorrow to think about. And uh, we've got uh, uh, our work to do and our, our lives to live. And uh, we rise and we get up and we do our work and we go to bed and we rise and we get up we do our work and we go to bed. And it all seems very routine. And this whole kind of other world seems to be far from us and far from our reality. That's why we need to keep reminding ourselves of who Christ is and why Christ was resurrected and why that's significant to us. So Thomas saw the risen Savior. That was very important. It's important for him. It's important for us. But Thomas also heard the word of peace. Verse 26, uh, Jesus, though the doors were locked, he came and appeared and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now previously, in the previous week, we're told that he said that twice to them. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now if you'll turn back with me very briefly to John chapter 14, just a few chapters before. If you look that up, and, and Jesus is with them in the upper room. Things are a bit of a struggle for them. It's, uh, they're full of doubt and confusion about what's happening and where Jesus is going to go. And uh, uh, he says uh, to them, and John uh, chapter 14 and verse 27, he says he's talking about the counselor, the Holy Spirit, and my Father will send my name, will teach you many things. And he will remind him of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave you. I leave with you my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. And do you not think that Thomas thought about these words when Jesus said to him, peace be with you here? Um, it, it was, a, it was a, a kind of it was an everyday greeting. We say hi or cheer or how's it going? They would say peace be with you. It was, a, it was an everyday greeting. But it was clearly invested with more than that simple greeting from the resurrected Savior here. Uh, and you know, when we hear something sometimes, it transports us back to another occasion when we heard it before. And it reminds us that it can be very uh, memorable. It reminds us of something. And I'm sure that Thomas was reminded uh, of uh, what he'd said to them in the upper room uh, don't be troubled, don't be afraid. So here's Thomas here. He's been blustering all week about not seeing the resurrected Savior. And he wouldn't be able to trust unless he was able to thrust his hands into Christ's side and, and check for the nail marks. And uh, he didn't believe the disciples, even though they'd said they'd seen the risen Savior. And he needed to be there. We have no, we have no real reason to know, no real understanding of why he wasn't there in the first place. But he, he came back among them the second time. And maybe when he saw Jesus here, he just felt, not quite so good about himself and he felt not so, quite so bold and uh, was probably fearful and uh, troubled and here Christ uh, is coming to bring him and to bring us peace and order and reason from the chaos of the events of these days that he'd been through now biblical peace is a really important thing and it's a really important reality for all of us in our lives it is the opposite when the bible speaks of peace divine the peace of god it's speaking about something that's the opposite of disorder and chaos sin brings into our lives personally in our hearts and in our experiences and our relationships chaos very often and disorder and um, uh, there's a priority and there's a structure 
to the peace of God that is very important for us to remember. It begins with the peace with God. So there's, we mentioned that this morning, the kind of vertical uh, aspect to our salvation, the relationship between ourselves and God. Romans 5, 1, uh, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have as Christians. We have peace with God. Um, this uh, reality that whatever's happening in our lives, you know, the one that is our judge, the one that we will stand before, the one who's the creator, the one with whom we were in chaotic dysfunction because of our sin, has made peace with us through his son, Jesus Christ. And the cross is, is crucial to that reality. So we can't, you know, you can never move away from that reality of the cross being crucial because it's the place where we find our peace is made with God. And uh, we need to be made right. We need to be friends with God. And anyone who you know, who you're witnessing to, is not a Christian, needs, that's the primary, that's the fundamental, that's the basic peace they need to find. They need to find that peace with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is, that's the most important thing for you to know and for me to know in our lives. So that were we to find out today we had terminal cancer, that we could rest in the knowledge. I'm not saying that we would take that easily or that it would be uh, without uh, absolute uh, brokenness and, and uh, fear and, and trouble. We would ultimately be able to return to this knowledge that we have this peace with God that... Uh, transcends this world and transcends our experience in this world and is an eternal peace which is very very different from just the uh, day-to-day living that sometimes is all we think about so it's a peace with god and that it reflects itself in an inner peace in our lives and we, we look for that um philippians 4 7 says and the peace of god which transcends all in you see, that's the same thing as this morning that says it's beyond understanding. This morning we we're talking about the love of God. Well, here it's talking about the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your what? What does it guard? It guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So again, he's saying it's, it's something that's an experience that's beyond knowledge. It's beyond uh, simply un- uh, hearing sermons. It's beyond reading books and chapters about peace. It's beyond at that level and transcends understanding. It involves understanding, but it's beyond that. It it is a spiritual experience uh, that comes miraculously from God. It's the fruit of a reconciliation with God. So we have that um, peace in our heart and souls. I've used this illustration before. It's like uh, the depth of the water and the sea, you know, under the water. It could be a raging storm on... Uh, the surface of the water. But when you plunge into the depths, there's that kind of uh, absolute peace, stillness, which uh, is not reflective of what's on the surface. It might be a great storm on the surface, but underneath there's this great calm. And it's saying that in our hearts and our minds, it's above our day-to-day experiences. It's not formulaic, but it is insurpassable. And as we are uh, linked with, and as we are in Christ Jesus, can you see the importance increasingly as Christians of being in Christ Jesus, being in relationship with 
And developing that, I'm going to say a little bit, I'm going to keep coming back to this last bit, which is very, very important. Uh, we have to continue to be in that relationship with Christ to know that peace. Very often in our Christian lives, we suffer from dispeace because we've, we've fallen in love with sin again. And we've fallen in love with, with, with living without Christ. And therefore, we lose that sense of spiritual peace with him. But it's also uh, not just an inner peace, but it's a, a peace that's reflected as a community peace. And that's the same uh, with all our Christian life. Um, Ephesians 2, uh, 14 and 7, he came and proclaimed and preached peace, who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier of division. Or Romans twelve eighteen, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So, you know, you'll be going out from here today and there'll be many ways in which your, the, the peace of your life will be threatened, uh, sometimes uh, internally, sometimes spiritually with God, but also maybe with other people. And uh, in the church and in the community society in which we live, uh, the message uh, of the cross demands that you seek to live peaceably with other people, as far as, far as it depends on you. And uh, that is the reality uh, of the gospel. It begins always with an inner peace, but is reflected in the way that we relate to other people and the way that we treat other people. So division and separation and dispeace is not the way of the cross. It might be what we feel sometimes forced to do, but as much as it depends on us, we are to live at peace with other people. Uh, and that might be in your office. It might be in your living room. It might be with your neighbors. It's, it's a very pragmatic peace, as well as a spiritual and uh, glorious uh, reality. So we see that Christ, uh, or Thomas, heard the voice of Christ, and Christ spoke to him. And we also see that Christ, in this great resurrected way, um, uh, engaged with Thomas and spoke to Thomas. And he said, then he said, verse 27 to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put into my side, stop doubting and believe, Thomas said to my Lord and my God. This is just such a nice, you know, the resurrection in terms of the work, the personal work of Christ is really important. But it's just a nice little cameo. A nice little interaction between the risen Savior, the living God, and Thomas. Doubting, as, as he's become known, doubting Thomas. And uh, it's a great little cameo because it also reflects the way Jesus deals with us. Maybe not face to face because we can't see him face to face because he's now ascended into glory. But spiritually, we see a couple of things. Well, we see three things here. Uh, this we close. The first is he acts with compassion uh, towards Thomas. Uh, there's a real sense in which uh, he is uh, very gentle uh, with Thomas. Um, and he knows Thomas's complaint, or he knows Thomas's uh, need for evidence before Thomas says anything to him. Jesus says, you know, Thomas, you know, put your finger here. Uh, peace be with you. Put your finger here. See my hand. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Thomas, weep before. I'll not. There's no way I will unless I can touch or feel. And Jesus said, well, here I am. Look at me and see that I am the risen Savior. I know. 
He says, I hear your complaint. He doesn't reject him. He doesn't uh, chastise him. He knows the weaknesses of Thomas, and he is patient and gentle and powerful and infinitely loving and personal. That's how he deals with us. That's how this resurrected Savior deals with you and deals with with me in my life. You know, so often we kind of bow our head before him and we think, I'm ashamed to go into his presence. I'm ashamed of what he will say. I'm I'm expecting a harsh and uh, um, chastisement from this great and glorious God. And yet he knows our weakness and he knows our complaint and he hears it. And he doesn't reject us. And uh, remember that that is the kind of saviour, this glorious divine saviour that we have. And uh, that this is the fruit of his resurrection. That he seeks to bring us to understand and to know and to appreciate who he is. And uh, we'll go on to say a little bit more about that as we close. But isn't that also important again to remember uh, in the way we treat other people? In the way, as is the fruit of the resurrection and the risen Savior, the compassion with which we deal with other Christians, particularly maybe other Christians, other Christians who are battling, who are struggling with doubt, who are far from God, who have drifted from the fellowship and the company of Christians, who have grown cold spiritually. Easy to wag our finger, easy to find fault, if somehow we think that we are better than them. Or if somehow we think that their wanderings is not reflected in the wanderings of our heart. We might not do it openly. We might not do it physically. We might not distance ourselves from the community of believers physically by not being present. But very often we can be sitting among the company of believers but be very, very far from them spiritually and far from the Savior that we share together. Easy for us so often to be harsh on others and easy on ourselves and to doubt uh, the depravity uh, of remaining sin within us. So be uh, people who reflect the resurrected Savior's compassionate attitude to one another. So he acts with compassion, but he also speaks with a warning. And I think this is, this is kind of culminating what I've said that I'm going to be coming back to, coming back to. It's very important what he says here. And it's not immediately... Uh, clear from the language. He says, he speaks with a warning and he uh, speaks with a challenge. But the warning is stop doubting. Uh, but a bit, what well, kind of, I don't know if it's a better translation, but a more uh, literal translation that, uh, of this would be uh, become not unbelieving. And that's the kind of warning that he gives to Thomas. He says, don't become unbelieving. And that's a, I think that's a very significant phrase. And I find that a very powerful challenge from Jesus because for me, that is our natural tendency, even as believers. Last Easter, I spent a lot of time, one weekend when Katrina was away, uh, completely renovating the back garden that we have, small though it is, it's small, but it's not that easy to get to. And I was laying down stones and paving and digging up and getting topsoil, and I had to lug it all through the house and had to lob it out through someone's bedroom window 
back into the back garden because you can't get access to the back garden. So it took hours and hours and hours. Finished that work. garden was great. looked fantastic. Now, if I had left that for a year and come back to it a year later, it would have just been devastated. It would have been overgrown. It would have been choked with weeds. You wouldn't have been able to see the pathway or the stones or anything. Because once, uh, once you've, you've made a new creation like that, you need to tend it. You need to keep it. Uh, because the natural um, reality of, of life uh, is that weeds will come in and choke it. Uh, it doesn't just stay the same. Everything atrophies. That's the reality of life. And the same is true spiritually. And that's what Jesus is really referring to here. Become not unbelieving. If we don't, if we don't connect to Christ, if we aren't empowered by Christ and dependent on Christ, this is not about um, working out our own salvation in order to be saved. This is working out our salvation because we are saved. And it's doing what uh, Christ has enabled and freed us and empowered us to do with the Holy Spirit, that we have this responsibility to not become unbelieving. And that requires work. That requires uh, that we tend our spiritual lives, that we uh, are focused on Christ, that we spend time in his company, and that we uh, recognize that there's this tendency in us to fall back into unbelief. Everyone here knows that. Everyone, every Christian. If you don't, you're a liar and a cheat, and I don't believe you. Everyone knows that we will lose the closeness we have to Christ if we, if we do not work at that relationship with it. If you stopped praying, if your Bible is closed, and if you're thinking about a million other things every time you come to church other than worshiping God, and it's just an hour that you must get through, it's because you are not allowing Christ to work in your heart and your soul. And Thomas's problem ultimately was not one of evidence, but one of disposition. It was a sinful heart that was wrong with him, not the lack of evidence, even though Jesus gave him that. And that's true for us as well. We kind of hold up our hands and say, well, if only, if only Jesus would do some miracles today, or if only, if only more people believed, or if only I could see him, or, and all these kind of things that we say, if only, if only, if only I'd be a better Christian. But it's not, it's not, the facts of the gospel that need to change. It's not the fact that Jesus is resurrected, even though we can't see him, uh, that needs to change. It's our hearts that need to change. Faith is sight of the inward eye. And it's not the facts that change. It's our person that needs to change because our tendency is to unbelief. Become not unbelieving, Jesus says to Thomas. It's a great old uh, Scottish commentator, Alexander McLaren, and he says there may be belief in the truth of the gospel and not a spark of faith in the Christ revealed by the gospel. You see, we need to have faith in the person of Jesus Christ. The core of our problem is unbelief, not evidence. It's the heart, not what's been revealed and that should drive us to prayer because it reminds us that our tendency is towards unbelief in our hearts. And we need to maintain a relationship with Christ to know any of these promises uh, of uh, 
anything that is above and beyond what we ask or even think because it's beyond mere understanding and mere knowledge. And so Jesus says to Thomas uh, with this warning, he says, become not unbelieving. And that's, that's the challenge that Jesus gives to you and me. Don't become unbelieving. Don't rest on your spiritual laurels. Don't depend on other people. Don't think because you're saved, uh, there's no work to be done, no relationship to be formed, no prayer to be wrestled with, no understanding of Christ to be made known. Uh, Become not unbelieving. But then he gives them the challenge, believe. Stop doubting, he says, become not unbelieving, but believe. Jesus says with authority. That's what he says. He says, look, believe. He, he commands Thomas to believe. That's a really interesting concept, isn't it? We think belief is something that we just come to ourselves, that we reason, we work out things, and eventually we come and yeah, bang, we believe. Jesus says it's an act of the will. It's a command that he gives. And when he gives commands, he gives the ability for us to perform that command. So we come to him by faith. He gives us the faith that we need to come to him drives us to God. Ephesians 2 reminds us that that is the truth, that faith is his gift and it comes from him. And uh, we rejoice in that knowledge that we are to be people who uh, come to him and believe. And when we believe, we are to do so uh, publicly. We had a great time this morning with that public baptisms and that public declarations of faith. Romans in... in, in, uh, true uh, obedience to Romans 10 9 if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved there's that confessional reality that is part of uh, our experience and it's a belief that increases uh, and develops as we pray you know the, those in uh, the apostles of Christ they increase our faith Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So we pray. You know, we, you know, we struggle. So I don't have much faith. I'm not a great person of faith. I struggle to believe. And ask for more faith. Pray that God will give you greater and stronger faith. And it's a relational faith, that this belief that uh, uh, Jesus is speaking about here, that Thomas reflects in his uh, falling before Jesus says, My Lord, and my God. That is a great reality. That is the faith, the living faith that we all share as well. Uh, it's a faith, it's a relationship that will be tested and challenged. And I think increasingly today, maybe from some of the different political decisions and even ecclesiastical decisions this week, will increasingly challenged. If you're a Christian, you'll increasingly be on the edges of society and uh, you are to rest in him. And you're to be the one who recognizes him as your leader, your Lord and your God and the impossibility that might have for you. And very lastly and very briefly, when Christ uh, uh, speaks with Thomas and engages with Thomas, he concludes this section by kind of engaging with us more directly. Christ engages uh, with Christendom because he said, blessed are you in verse 29, you have seen me and you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen uh, and yet have believed. That's you and me. And Jesus is pronouncing a blessing on us for believing even though we haven't seen. The gift of faith is for all believers. And it's accompanied by his blessing. And it is a a great thing 
to know that we are to believe, not because we have seen physically the resurrected Savior, however significant that was for um, the forming of the church and for the forming of the word and for the testimony of the word being absolutely clear and central. But we are blessed when uh, we believed and we have not seen. And that is a good thing. And give thanks to God for being able to believe even though you have not seen and uh, be transformed. In the same way that Thomas was hugely transformed here by the truth that he allowed to soak into his life. You need to do that. Uh, I need to do it for myself. You need to do it for yourselves. You need to allow this truth to permeate your thinking. You need to take time. You will need to spend time thinking about these things and praying to the Christ who has risen, ascended, and will return and take you with him to be with him forever. Let's pray. Father God, we ask and pray that we would understand the resurrection of Jesus better, that it's difficult for us when we have known it all our lives, known about it, that we have thought about it, that we've heard it preached. But Lord, we know particularly today that it is becoming something that is not in the psyche of the society in which we live. We laughed, ridiculed, mocked. People would think we were crazy for believing in the resurrection of Jesus and what it means it's so long ago. Uh, it seems so far from the mindset and the philosophical standing of our day, um, so far from the ethics and morality that we are being faced with. And yet we pray that we would allow ourselves uh, to be people who dwell on your truth and who dwell on the person of Jesus Christ and who pray to you and to seek uh, the power, as we saw this morning from Ephesians, the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to grasp how wide and how high and how long and how deep is your love and that it would be something that therefore for us surpasses knowledge and surpasses understanding. May the miracle of the Spirit work in us. And uh, we thank you that despite the difficulty of the days in which we live, that you are working. You're working in this church. You're working in this city. You're bringing people to yourself. You're changing the lives and the hearts and transforming people from darkness to light, from death to life. And we rejoice in that. May we not be on the sidelines. May nobody here stand outside of grace. May no one use the, uh, for whatever excuse, to not uh, act on the command of God to believe. May we be believing. And help us not to... Uh, return to unbelief. Uh, help us not to uh, allow the weeds of sin choke the fruit of our lives. Uh, but may we uh, deal with these things and deal with the doubts and the fears and the unbelief. And may we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And may our lives be a beautiful reflection of the love of Christ. And may we bear much fruit in your service. Help each of us to do that, we pray. And bless us as we sing our parting hymn together. For Jesus' sake, amen.